You ever own something that inspired you to up your game? We spend so much time in our cars. It's nice to have a car that makes you feel good. It's giving me like, you deserve to take care of yourself, girl. Honey, I just love Alexis because it's giving luxury. It just gives like, nice. When we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And the features on this GX, honey? Available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Available front row massaging seats. Ooh! Available 33-inch all-terrain tires. That's wide! Available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Darling, I was on a vacation recently and stayed at an Airbnb, and then I realized that while I was away, my empty house could be making money, honey. If you're someone like me that is busy and not home all the time, your home could be an Airbnb. And it's actually pretty simple to get started. Even if you don't have a whole house, you could start with just a spare room. Personally, I really enjoy staying at Airbnbs. I really do. I love a good Airbnb. Who is that? Come back, British you. And it really is a great way to like support local economy and support local people. So Airbnb is fabulous. And I know I was doing my British voice earlier, but We love Airbnb. So think about what you could do with some extra cash. Whether you're looking to treat yourself to something nice, like a shopping spree or a spa day, or start a whole side hustle, Airbnb can help you be that person. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. And every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Now, if you could hear the literal burgeoning queer excitement in that intro that you maybe don't always hear, you're going to understand why right now. Do you remember where you were when you first saw Amy Schneider compete on Jeopardy? Chances are you were in your living room with your pets or people you love, a work day behind you, and dinner was in the freaking oven or you were like ordering it like I probably was. For people who ritually watch Jeopardy, we welcome contestants into our homes night after night. We get to know them. We play along with them. We care for them. So when Amy ascended to Jeopardy's legendary status, it was a win for her and for everyone rooting her on. Her Jeopardy career is so major. She's major. And it's major that we have a chance to literally meet her today and spend time with her and get to see what it's like to be one of the most iconic people ever on Jeopardy. Now, if you've been living under a fucking rock, and I don't know what's wrong with you if that's the case, Amy Schneider is an American software engineer and Jeopardy champion. Following a 40-game winning streak, she became the most successful woman to ever compete on Jeopardy. She is second all-time in the show's history, trailing only Ken Jennings. Also, she is the first openly transgender contestant to qualify for the Tournament of Champions. Her new book, In the Form of a Question, The Joys and Rewards of a Curious Life, is out this month. Amy, how are you? I am doing fantastic. 40 fucking games. That's longer than a month. You sent 40 hoes packing. And I just want to say, good, wait, that's 80. way more than 40. Yeah, 80 hoes packing. Yeah. More like 40 times two. I'm 
obsessed with you for that. <laughs> You're a literal expert in curiosity. What is something that has sparked your curiosity recently? Yeah, it's uh, just last night I was I was thinking about how in Britain they've got like knights that are like sir and lady and like whether there's been any controversy over there around, you know, any non-binary people or, or people transitioning or things like that. But I haven't researched it. I'm going to look at my Wikipedia history and see what I've been, what rabbit hole I've gone down recently. I only ever just go down like deep gymnastics and figure skating history <laughs> holes on Wikipedia usually. I'm really excited to hear what you do. Uh, let's see. Oh, I was actually like going and looking at the Kennedy assassination. There was like that Secret Service agent that like revealed something about a bullet or something. His new book. He placed the bullet in a different place so it wouldn't get stolen or whatever. Right, yeah. Which, like, I couldn't quite figure out why that mattered, really. <laughs> well, because maybe there's, like, like the multiple killer thing? Yeah, you know, that's that's a thing. And I, I was just trying to remember, like, what the conspiracy theories kind of say. And, like, I looked at it and I was like, I don't know. If it was a conspiracy, it was so good, we're never going to figure it out. So, like, it's not something I'm going to, like, obsess over too much. Ah, uh, so I guess you kind of accidentally, we all just discovered that together, we just like accidentally answered our next two questions, which is like, where did you go to learn more? Wikipedia. And what we discovered is that, uh, well, what did you discover? I hadn't known about the fact that there was like a House committee investigation that did say that there were probably multiple gunmen. Oh, was that that Warren Commission or whatever? Or like some commission? It was later than that. The Warren Commission said that he acted alone. But then there was another oh. commission that said that there were multiple gunmen. But that was based on this audio recording that later kind of got debunked. So it doesn't really mean anything. Wow. Okay, wait, wait. So your book, which congratulations, I know how hard it is to write a book, honey, and like, <laughs> congratulations. Your book is about so much more than your Jeopardy run. But in the spirit of going for $1,000 clues first, how do you tell the story of your Jeopardy career? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's something that I, I grew up watching it. I can't remember ever not watching the show. And then, you know, and I was always like good at school and things like that. So it was just sort of always in my in my plan to to be on the show someday. So, and I'd been trying out for like maybe 15 years before I actually got on the show, which, you know, turned out to be a great thing because it meant that I didn't get on the show until after I had transitioned, which, you know, first of all, is just something that I'm, I'm happy about. And second of all, I know that I wouldn't have done as well. You know, I just wouldn't have been myself. And like pre-transition, there's always some part of my mental brain that's like busy, like maintaining the facade of boyness. And not having that anymore just, you know, freed up my brain to, to focus on the game. Fuck yours. Yeah. I'm obsessed with that. That's all the sort of like leading up to being on Jeopardy. And then the Jeopardy run itself was just such a shocking thing to me, you know. Like, I knew I was pretty good at the game and I, I thought I could, you know, win a couple episodes or whatever. But then for what happened to happen was just something that was really mind-blowing. And for it to all happen all of my episodes being taped before any of them had aired and knowing this thing that nobody else in the world knew was such a, a weird and fascinating uh, month of my life. Oh, so it took about a month for your episodes to start coming out after you had recorded them. Yeah, more or less. Yeah. How interesting. That reminds me of like when Queer Eye was wrapped, but no one knew yet. And I was like, well, I wonder. Um, yay us. <laughs> yeah. So how would you describe yourself as a Jeopardy player? Like. 
cool, calm, collected, fucking aggressive, fucking more like <laughs> leaves it all on the dance floor or more like consistent queen? I would say more consistent. That was certainly something I aimed for. I would also say definitely competitive, which is not sort of my natural state, but I really like pushed myself to really be competitive and be there to win. You know, it was the only chance I was going to get to be on the show. And then the only chance I was going to get to make that amount of money in that short of a time. And, you know, and it was also once I got into it, it was so fun. I just didn't want anybody to, to take it away from me. And I was like, these are all nice people that I'm meeting every day. And I'm here to crush their dreams. And I'm going to do it. Were you stressed out having to come up with like a different blurb about yourself like every fucking day for 40 days? I definitely was. I was getting very close to if I had gone another like three or four episodes, I would have started making some stuff up because I was just <laughs> running out of ideas. And I also like I kind of held myself to uh, as high a standard as I could with those anecdotes. I'm, you know, a theater kid, I'm a performer, and and I was always conscious of the fact that it wasn't just a game, it was a, a television show. And so I was always trying to have an anecdote that's like, you know, the 10, 15 seconds that you have, beginning, middle, end, punchline, get out. Okay, awareness, because sometimes the people's stories just suck, and you're like, oh God, that was like the most painful 10 to 15 seconds of my life. So thank you for giving us a masterclass and just like gorgeousity and like exactly what you just said, like stand-up comedian vibes. I'm obsessed. So how would you compare your on-camera Jeopardy self with like who you are off-camera? Um, you know, I tried I tried to keep it like reasonably similar. You know, that was that was one of the sort of conscious decisions I made going in was like not worrying about how I was coming off or trying to like present myself a certain way. I was just going to, again, take energy away from from focusing on the game. You know, but that said, I wanted people to like me. You know, I've watched the show my whole life. I know what I like contestants to be like and what kind of annoys me. And so I didn't want to be one of those people that are annoying. Which is? Uh, like being really frantic, visibly frantic with the buzzer and and that sort of thing. Do they ever not work? Like the people who are frantic, do you think they're just not working like those days? Like does the buzzer a little, is there a little lag time to the buzzer? Is there a little QAnon conspiracy around like the efficacy of those buzzers or what? Well, no, not really. I mean, hmm. the way the buzzer works is that if you buzz in too early, then when the buzzers do get enabled, yours is like a quarter second slower than everybody else's. So it penalizes you if you buzz in before the light goes on. Oh. And so the secret of it is, is that actually every contestant is buzzing in that frantically. It's just I kept it below the podium where nobody could see it, which is also partly a way of like, then people don't know how many times you're actually ringing in and you can sort of be like, if somebody else rings in on something you didn't know, you can just sort of be like, oh, I got that. I just I, I just got beat on the buzzer. But I, I knew that. I knew that. Ah, uh, so... One of the first things that we learn about Jeopardy contestants is their names, obviously. And in your book, you write candidly about how you landed on the name Amy. What was it like to introduce yourself as Amy on the show and in such a public way? I mean, it was, you know, wonderful and, in, in, you know, the is the short answer. Um, you know, again, like thinking about if I had been on the show under my, my dead name and like what it would have been like to go back and see that would have been such a, a, a bummer. And it's been a few years at this point, but it's like, there's such a pride in like, I picked out that name and it's perfect for me and I love it. And I'm very, just very happy about it. You know, growing up, I could never have imagined that I would be allowed to change my name somehow. So it was, 
it was pretty cool. It was really gratifying. Oh, trans joy. We deserve it. Love. Yeah. And then writing about your childhood in Ohio, you note, quote, that I was not a boy was not a possibility I considered. I assumed that other boys felt the same, found it just as exhausting and unbearable. Okay. The resonation that I feel with that was major. What was it like to reflect on this period of your life for the book? Because I'm sure this was like such a whirlwind time. You you'd, And this time you become like a public figure. Like so many people know who you are. So yeah, what was that like? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's something that I was spending a lot of time reflecting on already just in my life. That's, again, one of the things about transitioning, like I say in the book, is that you have to kind of retell your whole history of yourself to merge it back together with, with your current self. When I first transitioned, I felt so alienated with the person I had been pre-transition, and that was really unpleasant. I had to work to kind of reconcile myself throughout my life. So when it came to writing the book, those sections were kind of just like ready to go because I'd been kind of like thinking about that so much. And like you say, too, like having become a public figure and all of a sudden like my life changing so much in that sense, it does make you reexamine yourself because, you know, ultimately so many people know me, but they know just this like one part of me. And it can become a weird thing where you start to like lose your private self in your public self. And so that was another thing that was kind of like forcing a lot of self-reflection at the time anyway. Where it was more challenging was just about some of the harder points in my life that I talked about and sort of revisiting those. I felt like for whatever reason, it felt important to do so. But I was surprised at how emotionally intense it got to be kind of reliving those and how it would certain chapters I was working on, it would really like kind of put me in a tailspin. And in fact, like the rest of my life went even when I, I put the laptop down. That wasn't something I was expecting. I used to say in therapy, it felt like when I wrote over the top, it felt like putting my soul into like a blender and then putting it back together again. It really is a lot, but you're a strong ass woman for fucking doing it. So more power to you. So I don't know about you, but as a non-binary trans person, you know, I'm a queer person. Some of these states are just really giving it to the girls, boys, and non-binaries out there. You come from Ohio. You're from Ohio, which you write mm -hmm. about. So what's it been like to return to Ohio as an advocate for trans youth? I wouldn't imagine Ohio as being like, super not wanting to legislate against trans people. They're pretty into it, yeah. So yeah, I did go back there and actually testify at the state legislature in a hearing about one of those bills. Basically, I was debating whether I was going to do it. I was in the middle of a trip. I was going to have to like fly from New York to Columbus and back in, in a day and, and all of this sort of thing. But then I was sitting there thinking about it, and I said, you know what, like, Compared to being a trans kid in Ohio, if this passes, having to take a couple plane flights and do something scary is nothing. I owe it to them because their lives are on the line. You know, and then I get there too, and as I was waiting and I was with the people that had invited me, there was this real sort of, I guess you would say kind of imposter syndrome sort of thing, because, you know, these are like nonprofits, people working in government, people that are there, you know, on the ground every day, like 
fighting this fight. And I'm just this celebrity from Oakland that is, you know, flying in and flying out. And, you know, I felt kind of weird about that. But they were so reassuring and they were so saying like, look, you're getting attention that none of us could get and you have your role to play and we have ours. That's what the fight takes is everybody contributing in their own way so that I came out of it feeling a a lot better. And, you know, we were able to delay it at the time. It has since gotten revived and it it did get passed. Um, I think I just saw that recently that it had been blocked by a judge for the time being, but yeah. Mm. A lot of these bans on gender-affirming care, um, education bills, anything targeting trans folks, we definitely need that we're going to start seeing those at the Supreme Court is what we've been thinking at, um, on the pod just mm-hmm. because we're going to get so many different decisions on like some laws being blocked, some not being blocked, and that's certainly going to send it to the Supreme Court. So yeah. we're watching that really closely over here. But this was one moment back to the book that was a small moment that I loved when you came out to your coworker and they gave you a mug with Amy on it. What are some simple ways listeners can support trans folks in their lives? Yeah, I think that the main thing is just to listen to them and take them at their word and not, you know, not debate them uh, when they tell you what is true about themselves. You know, I got a, a, a message from some stranger online, but it was their, uh, you know, like maybe mid-20s son had just moved back in and had expressed like they, you know, kind of felt some discomfort with their gender and they wanted to, they were asking if their parents could take them out to buy some like, you know, women's clothes that they might feel more comfortable in and this sort of thing. And the parents were completely accepting and, and nothing wrong with, uh, with their attitude towards the whole thing. But they were asking me like, well, what should we do? How should we handle this? Partly like asking between the lines, like, should we start using she, her pronouns? Since it looks like that's where this is going to go, you know, and the answer was just like, your son already told you what to do. He said that he still wants to be using he, him pronouns for now, and he would like to buy some clothes. Do that. You know, when the time comes that he wants to change pronouns, he will say so or she will say so. And until then, they don't need, you know, it's hard. It's hard to go through that change. And I certainly spent, you know, a few months in a situation where I was going out dressed as a woman was sort of on the road to transitioning, but I didn't know that I could call myself trans yet. I didn't have a new name. I didn't know if I wanted to change my pronouns. And I really appreciate the people who just said, okay, and didn't ask follow-up questions and didn't, you know, try to figure out what was really going on. That's really just what it's about is let people transition at their own time and their own way and don't question them about it and don't react like, it's a huge deal. It is a huge deal to them, but they don't necessarily want you to be reacting that way. Again, like I say, it's a scary thing to do to transition. And the reason it's scary is you're worried that everyone in your life, you're changing your relationship to them. And so when you, the person in your life, kind of oversells it and wants to talk about it too much and things like that, that kind of plays into that fear. Like, oh, now I'm not this person's friend. Now I'm their trans friend. And you know, like, don't, don't let that happen. Mm. Thank you so much for that. They always say, trust your gut. But one time my gut told me to bleach my eyebrows. And that was 
fashionable, but not widely well-received. While probiotics can't help you with most of your gut decisions, it can give your gut a little bit of support. And Ritual has your back. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Did you know daily disturbances like poor diets, stress, travel, the use of certain medications, and plenty of other factors can throw off your gut microbiome? Oh, no! Enter Ritual. Their Symbiotic Plus has been a gorgeous tool. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide, your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash curious. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash curious for 25% off. Let's face it, I'm not going to stop treating myself anytime soon, and neither should you. But what I should stop doing is paying for me time with whatever random credit card is in my wallet. NerdWallet lets you compare top travel credit cards side by side to maximize your spending, some even offering 10 times the points on your spending. So what could future you do with better rewards? Honey, is it like a gorgeous free flight that you would have had to have paid for, but honey, you're saving that flight money? Is it a gorgeous room upgrade? Is it like a gorgeous like two-bedroom suite instead of a one-bedroom suite so your like in-laws or like your friend could stay over there in that room so you don't have to like hear them doing whatever with what they're doing in your your guys' room? Is it like really adulting? Oh, I love adulting. And you know what else I love? is not waiting to make smart financial decisions. I also love paying my credit cards off in full every month because like, yes, good credit. So let's like do try to do that and like making responsible decisions, which we love. Um, But anyway, don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Nerdwallet, finance smarter. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. So you also write about dealing with ADD. And in the book, you say, quote, ADD made me literally addicted to learning. And I loved your point that when you're talking about your internal mental processes, what's the difference between a disorder and a soul? Honey, (laughs) how have you come to understand your ADD? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the main thing that it's done for me is given me a path out of, like, a lot of like negative self-talk and beating myself up about things. It's made me realize that the reason I can't keep my house as neat as other people that I know is just that my brain doesn't work that way. And that is just harder for me than it is for them. It's not that I'm lazy and it's not that I'm flawed. It's just that I'm different and I have different skills. And, you know, again, that thing about it, making me addicted to learning, like that's a hundred percent true. It's why I do like go through all these Wikipedia wormholes and, and things like that because I get bored so easily and I need something to do that'll interest my brain and learning new things works every time to keep my brain happy. And so that's gotten me so much benefit in my life, you know, not least, uh, you know, a million dollars on Jeopardy. And so I can accept the trade-off that it's also harder to keep my place clean and it's also harder for me to stay focused on long projects and not go off and drop it and start something new. Mm. So 
What advice do you have for people who are trying to understand their brains? I guess, uh, you know, keep at it. I think it's sort of a lifelong process. I certainly have found therapy incredibly useful. And it, it took me a while to find the right therapist. But once I did, I've learned so much through that work with my therapist about, about my brain and about, you know, my sort of underlying motivations and things. And I think, you know, when it comes to mental health, our mental health system and the way we talk about it is so pathologizing. You know, it's again, attention deficit disorder. Like what makes it a disorder? It's a disorder because it's harder for the kid to sit still in class, but that's, you know, society's problem potentially and not yours. Mm. Um, so, you know, you have to engage with that kind of pathologizing language to get treatment and to get, you know, medication and things like that, but don't internalize it. Being ADD is not a disorder any more than being trans is a disorder, even though I'm on prescriptions for both of them, you know, and like I, I, in a sense, I need treatment for both of them, but that's not because there's anything wrong with them. It's just, I just want my life to be as happy as possible. Yes, Amy, come on, destigmatization. So how did you learn to like thrive? And I mean, because you wrote an incredible book and you were incredibly successful on Jeopardy all while having ADD. So how did you navigate that? And you, because you obviously like are in a really good place with it. In the case of Jeopardy, you know, I was really able to kind of leverage it for myself and to really have that like hyper focus during those 30 minutes at a time that I was that I was in the game. I did a lot of work beforehand, like visualizing, like, how am I going to deal with distractions when my mind starts to wander? And, you know, and then it didn't turn out to be that hard. Because the thing about Jeopardy is it goes so fast. Like, it's like, bang, bang, bang. So it's sort of constant stimulus. There's not time even for my ADD brain to get to get bored and distracted during it, which is not the case for writing a book. <laughs> that was a, a whole different challenge. But one that you were able to do, and I'm so glad that you did. So in the book, you write that, quote, knowledge is a shield and a sword, a joy and a duty. How has knowledge had all of these meanings for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, knowledge as as a shield, I think about it in terms of, like, not getting scammed, basically. Like, if you sort of know kind of what money is and how it works and, you know, the history of some, like, other things, then you can see that cryptocurrency was never money and could never be, and you could see that it was a scam, which it was. That's sort of one of the examples of, of it being a, a shield. And, you know, as a sword, it, it, it I think... You know, I don't like to think of it as as attacking people with with my knowledge or whatever. It is a tool. It it makes you prepared to, you know, whatever a situation arises. It makes you you know better at at your job. It makes you better in relationships. It, you know, it, and it's not always easy to pin down like what specific thing. You never know what particular piece of knowledge is going to come in useful at what time. But you can trust that if you keep learning, some of them are going to turn up when you least expect it as being just the knowledge that you need. Mm. You know, and it's a joy just because it is for me. I don't know. Like maybe it isn't for everybody, but I just, I just 
get such gratification of of knowing things and learning new things and being like, oh, I didn't know that. That's so cool. Ah, uh, that reminds me of this time when I was watching Outlander, and there was this like scene from the Battle of Cum Laden that it was like Cum Laden, seventeen forty eight, and then like three days later, I was at this gay party, and the tie breaking trivia question was, when was the Battle of Cum Laden? And I just like I was like, ah! <laughs> and I knew, and everyone was so impressed with me, and I knew it all because of. Not Jeopardy, but Outlander. So, yay. Yeah. Okay, so I don't know how much you can talk about this, but like, how does Jeopardy work, Queens? Like, you wake up, you're in a hotel, you got to get, and then you like go do HMU. Like, did you guys do like, because this is kind of crazy, but I used to do Mm -hmm. the wife of the announcer of Jeopardy's hair. (laughs) So I feel like I know some of the things. Like, don't you do like several episodes a day? Like, yeah. Right? Yeah, you do five episodes a day. Um, so your call time is seven thirty, and you meet up in the in the staging area in the parking garage, and and they walk you all in. Everybody brings at least three changes of clothes, so you take that to wardrobe. They decide what one they want you to be wearing for your first episode, and then they rotate everybody through hair and makeup. And while they're doing that, they go through this long briefing of explaining basically like all the rules, all the basics of the gameplay. You know, which like. of us know all of it already because we're like Jeopardy obsessive, but they just have to make sure that everybody has been told the same thing. That part got real tedious real fast when I was coming back in every day. Yeah. And so once they've got everybody in hair and makeup, you go over and do a rehearsal. They run everybody through in batches and everybody gets two chances up on the stage to practice the game and to get used to how the buzzer feels and to, you know, just be on the stage and 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 take it all in. So, Final Jeopardy. You're like, kind of like, okay, I have this much, my competitors have this much, and then the category comes up, so it'll be like, mm-hmm. historical figures or something. And then, because like, they can all be, because like, there's not like set topics for Final Jeopardy. It could be like anything. It could be like 18th century literature, like for sure. anything. So it's like literally anything. And then that's when you see that and you're like, okay, based off how much I know about like, you know, 18th century literature, I'm going to wager however much, like based on how much mm-hmm. I know. And then you see the question. And then once you see the question, you're like, fuck me. Yeah. So, or mm-hmm. maybe yay. And then, and then is the screen like, does that screen just look like a little whiteboard or something? Like, what do you write on, or do you just use your finger? Is there like a little pen? There's a stylus, yeah. A so it's, it's a little screen that you're you're writing on with a with a stylus, and you know, I definitely I have had ha- terrible handwriting my whole life, and doing it with like a thick stylus on a screen did not help that at all. So I was I was always kind of like one of my secret fears, like the whole my whole time on Jeopardy was that I would get a final Jeopardy answer right, but like write it illegibly and not get credit for it. Like I was always like freaking out that that might happen. And why can't I remember right now, but on Final, you still have to write, like, what is or who is, like, you, do you still have to write the answer as a question on Final Jeopardy? You do, but this is a, a behind-the-scenes fact. So, like, there's a moment in the commercial break between them announcing the category and then them coming back and reading the clue, where they'll always come back with a shot that's, like, of all the contestants writing on their thing. And the implication is that they're writing down their wagers, but that's not true. Actually, what they're doing is we're writing down either the word what or who, and they tell us which one is going to be, so that we've already got it written down before the clue comes up, so that we don't forget to write this a question. 
Fuck yes, queen with the scintillating behind the scenes knowledge. <laughs> okay, I'm so obsessed. And wow. Hey, it's Jonathan Van Ness. Americans United for Separation of Church and State defends your freedom to live as yourself and believe as you choose, so long as you don't harm others. Core freedoms like abortion rights, marriage equality, public education, and even American democracy itself rest upon the wall of separation between church and state. Christian nationalists are attacking these freedoms, seeking to force us all to live by their narrow beliefs. Americans United is fighting back. Freedom without favor and equality without exception. Learn more about AU at au.org slash curious. If you're like me, the threat of fascism is weighing on you this year. But even when the F word is uttered, way too few of us are considering the full scope of the danger, let alone how to really stop it. The Refuse Fascism podcast hosted by Sam Goldman names it, dissects it, and connects in-depth analysis of what fascism is with the understanding and urgency we need to defeat it. And she is joined by great guests to discuss the threat of civil war, attacks on abortion rights and trans rights, Trump and the theocrats, Project 2025, efforts to erase history and critical thinking, and much more. Check out recent episodes featuring Kathleen Ballou, Jeff Charlotte, Sarah Posner, Wajahat Ali, Dahlia Lithwick, and many more. Subscribe to the Refuse Fascism podcast on your listening platform of choice or go to refusefascism.org slash podcast. You're also a tarot queen, which <laughs> I know that this is like something I shouldn't, well, not shouldn't, but it's like, I just grew up in a really religious family and we had this like really ultra religious cleaning lady who would wear knee pads and like blast Joyce Meyer 24 hours a day like whenever she was with us <laughs> not literally 24 hours because she didn't live at our house but whenever she was there like Joyce Meyer was on and whenever I would ask a question about like something like her, she'd be like that's how the enemy gets in and makes you guy or whatever <laughs> she didn't really say that, but she, she would just say the enemy in and then you become an addict or whatever but I need to be more into it. I think I'm not like really that scared of it but like tarot cool Um, how different is reading tarot from like solving a trivia clue and like yeah. And also, like, what is tarot? In, like, three sentences or less. Yeah, so tarot is is just a, a fancy deck of cards that was developed by some, you know, nut jobs in, like, around the year 1900. But they all they all kind of have meanings associated with them. And so when you, you, you pull some at random and then you think through the meanings and, and you try to tell a story about how that meaning applies to to either you or the or the person that you're giving the reading for. I got into it, I don't know, maybe like 10 years ago, like, and it wasn't something I ever expected to get into because like, I am like, you know, I'm a software engineer. I'm a very like kind of rationalist, like, you know, atheist type of person. And I was like, ah, it's all just a scam or whatever. But I, I came to learn that it's not really a scam. It is a tool for self-analysis. I would always tell people, I would, I would sit at the bar and give readings to strangers, um, and I would always tell them, I'm not going to tell you anything that you don't already know. Mm. It just is a prompt to make you think about yourself in a different way and come to truths about yourself that, that you knew on some level but didn't have them at the surface. And that's what I think is really just cool and valuable about it. And I've, I've seen it help so many people and I've been helped by it so many times. 
Uh, how jelly that like someone just like sat next to Amy Schneider and got a fucking free terror. That's cool. Um, I love that you're just, like doing terror like, fierce. Okay, so now some of our dream Jeopardy clues would be about figure skating, gymnastics, Dolly Parton, the Golden Girls, and gardening. So our amazing producers have pulled some for each topic from old Jeopardy episodes. Shall we play a round of Jeopardy then, darling? Well, not not one of those is a topic I would have picked, but yeah, let's do it. Oh my god. Here are our Jeopardy clues for today. From show 616 on Monday, April 20th, 1987, we have celebrity quotes for 300. These are all sourced from the Jeopardy archive. The clue, he revealed, quote, Marlo and I watch Golden Girls every Saturday night. It's our foreplay, end quote. Well, I accidentally saw it on the answer when I scrolled to the next page. It was the only answer I saw. It's the only answer I saw. Who's Marlo? I know who Marlo is, and it's not coming to me because I don't because I have no other context for it. He, I'll give you a hint. Yeah. He was a talk show host. Was a talk show host, or is was uh, maybe was? It's Phil Donahue, right? Oh, yeah, I saw that, but that's the only one I saw. Okay, what's our next one? Okay, from show three thousand four hundred and forty-two. This is Tuesday, July 20th, 1999, from Movie Songs for 400. The clue, Jonathan, this is customized for you. Whitney Houston sang this 1974 Dolly Parton hit uh, in The Bodyguard. Ah! Uh, what is I Will Always Love You? You got it. Yep. Oh my god! But you already—I I know you knew that. Amy. Oh, I, I definitely knew that. No, and that is one of the very few. Like a lot of people have covered a lot of Dolly Parton songs, and that's maybe the only one that I think is actually an improvement over Dolly Parton's version of it. Oh my god, honey! And I clicked my pin button just so you guys knew. Um, what's our <laughs> next question? From show three thousand one hundred and eighty-one, Monday, June first, nineteen ninety-eight. The category is judges for six hundred. The clue, she was the first Olympic gymnast to receive a perfect 10 from the judges. Do you know this, Amy? I do indeed. Do you, do you, you take this one, but I also know oh, it. Oh, yeah. But I know it's it too. Uh, should we say it together? Oh, should we count down three, two, yes. one, and then say this? So okay. we'll go on what would be zero. Ready? All right. Okay, ready? Three, two, one. One Nadia, Nadia Comaneci. Yeah, yep. we yep. did it. That's right, right? Yeah. I know it's right. I don't even have to ask. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Okay. What's the next one? From show 7502, more recent. This is Tuesday, April 4th, 2017. We've got our daily double. The category is gardening for $1,000. Holy shit! To keep this vegetable's head white... Tie up the leaves around the developing curd. What? It, can I do it? Do you know? Go for it. Do okay, it. Okay. Okay. But this isn't because you don't know. I just, I really want to know if I'm right. And I'm pretty sure you probably already know what it is. Okay. Ready? What is, what is fucking cauliflower? No, it's yes. asparagus. It's cauliflower. Oh, yeah. I was so scared it was going to be asparagus. I freaked out. I got so scared. How did you do this, Amy? I'm going to get diarrhea. We aren't even really playing. I'm freaking out. I mean, it was it was intense. It was hard. <laughs> yeah, it's stressful. 
Is there any other questions? There's one more. We have a final Jeopardy round. Ooh. Okay, what is it? Jonathan, maybe we need you to go on Celebrity Jeopardy. We need to start training. It starts today. Okay. Okay, this is from show 5,748. This is a Wednesday, September 16th, 2009 edition of Jeopardy. This is our final Jeopardy round. And the category is 20th Century Women. The clue. Wait, I would like to wager. (laughs) I would like to wager $3. (laughs) Do you want to wager something? Yes, unless Amy wants to wager oh, something I'm, also big spendy. I'm I'm going all in. Whatever I've got, I'm, I'm oh my betting god, it she's all. all. Oh my god, I should have gone all in too. We're both all in. We're both all in. Oh my god. <laughs> all right, the clue. She won gold at the 1928, 1932, and 1936 Winter Olympics. I know and this. also has a star on the Hollywood. I know block. this. Okay, do you know this, Amy? Uh, is it uh, Fleming? No. No? Uh, then, then I guess I don't. Yeah. Who is Sonia Henning? That's correct. These were tailored well for you, done. Jonathan. Yes. The only thing about her that was not great, and this is pretty major, is that she was she was either a full Nazi or a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, so ah, well, we didn't know ideal. right away. I don't know if everyone knew right away. <laughs> I, you know, when you go on the wiki now, it's, and her parents were really rich and it was like rigged. Like she was, turns out <laughs> she was kind of a, see you next Tuesday if you ask me, but no Michelle Kwan. If I've learned anything from watching the first half of the Disney Channel movie Ice Princess last night. Wow. Uh, it's that you you need to come from a rich family to to make it as a as a figure skater. You watched that last fucking night. Yes, uh, mm. it was Genevieve's idea. I don't know how we how it came up, but she was like, "Oh my god, you've never seen this. You have to." And so, yeah, is that the one where the lady's blind? No, that's Ice Castles. No, it's uh, Joan Cusack is the mom, and like the girl is like a physics student. And it's like using physics to become a good figure skater. It's it's amazing. That's so smart and it's so correct. Um, that was the best, most amazing Jeopardy round I've ever participated in personally. Erica, can, can we give it up for our producers? Um, yay, team getting curious. That was so good. Amy, thanks for playing Jeopardy with me. I would like to endorse the idea that you should be on Celebrity Jeopardy. Like, you know, I've watched Celebrity Jeopardy. You would do just fine, I assure you. Oh, I'll do you. it fucking right now. I'll, I'll fucking go right here fucking right now. When When is it? When do we <laughs> sign up? Who do I got to talk to? I'm going to tell, I'll tell somebody. I wonder if it's like, um, if, I wonder if it's like a, a struck show. I'll figure it out. And if it's not, I am going to go. Uh, okay. It's time for a Jeopardy rapid fire. Ba-ba-da-da-da. I don't know why I did It's Friday Night and I just got played song by uh, NSYNC is the background of that, but whatever. Um, (laughs) Rapid Fire, we're going in. Favorite outfit you've worn on the show? I love a lot of them, but I have to go with the the pink jacket uh, that I wore a bunch in my first run because I kind of like doubted my... I, I was like can I really like wear this like bright hot pink on the show? And like, can I pull that off? And then I realized that I could and it actually looked great on me. And it was, it was very exciting. Ah, uh, um, I love that story. Any game day rituals? Yeah. I mean, I tried to keep things pretty much the same. One of my rituals that I've talked about before a lot was that I had a playlist that I called victory morning that I would listen to every morning on my way to the studio. And then I would also like try to like, be singing uh, Eminem's Lose Yourself in the moments that I was on stage right before the camera started rolling. 
Ah, uh, honey, yeah. not Marshall. Um, uh, a clue that made you lull. I don't know about a, a you know, I, I don't, I don't think they're generally that funny, really. Um, True. Yeah, no, I can't. I can't think of one off the top of my head. No. The key to a well-written clue. That is a, a great question, and it's something that I think is like underappreciated about Jeopardy and its success is that they're so good at this. The real key to a, a, a good Jeopardy clue that they're always trying to do is to give you more than one way to get to the answer, to give you like sort of two little paths that either way that that, that might lead you there, and. To do it, they have such a small space to work with, like like less than a tweet, mm. to to fit the whole clue onto, and to phrase it in their weird way that they have to, so that it's an answer, not a question, and all of that sort of thing. And it's just amazing how much how many clues they write and how consistently good a job they do. Come on, WGA, and come on, writers, uh, give them that money, give them that money. Uh, a piece of advice for people trying to get on the show. It's the last rapid fire. Uh, I mean, I get asked this a lot, as, as you might imagine. Uh, you know, the first thing I say is, like, be persistent and stick with it. Like, it's like 2% of applicants every year get on. And just the fact that it's going year after year and you're not getting on doesn't mean you won't eventually. Like, like I said, it took me like 15 years. The other thing I'd say that is is kind of for some some subset of people that are like kind of really obsessive about it and really like into it is that you should probably be a little less obsessive about it and care about it a little less because the fact is there's a lot of luck involved you don't know who you're going to go up against or whether you'll be good on the buzzer and there's a good chance that when you get on the show you'll play one game and you'll lose and that'll be it so don't make it work for yourself don't study like it's finals exams like study things that you're interested in, have fun with it, you know, learn for the sake of learning. And then whatever happens on Jeopardy, it won't have been wasted because you'll have had a good time. And was that how you approached your experience? Like you weren't like cramming for finals or you just kind of like were engaging with learning as you saw, as you saw fit? Pretty much it's engaging with learning as I saw fit. I think, I mean, the other specific thing is going through J Archive like consistently on like my commutes and things like that, um, just to sort of see like patterns in, in things that they asked about or things that I was consistently missing. Um, so like there was a few little like cramming things I did Ooh. for those, like, for example, I could never remember which Bronte sister was which. Or, you know, they're like figuring out like the different parts of the brain that they asked about a lot. So like some small things I, I crammed on at the end. But for the most part, my attitude going in was like, I either know it at this point or I don't. And it, the odds of something coming up that I came across in that last frantic two hours before before the game show, like that's not going to happen. Like, come on, Hippocampus. I love that. <laughs> that was so much fun. Amy, what's next for you and your work? Your book's out. Maybe some more Jeopardy in your future. Where and uh, and what like platforms are you the most engaged in? Like, where can people follow you and like keep up with you? Instagram and TikTok uh, mainly. Um, you know, I do. I still have an account on Twitter, but like that seems to be dying. So who knows what's what's going to come out of that? And yeah, as far as what's next, I mean, my hope is that it's going to be another book. So like everybody, get out there and buy this one so I can get another book deal. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and there's there's some other things like some podcast ideas that that are kind of in development and and that I hope are actually going to happen, but you know nothing nothing really confirmed yet there. But that's like I've already started. I've got a whole like list of ideas for what's going to go in the next book, and I, I kind of want to just get going on that. Oh my god! Well, y'all, this book is incredible. It is out 
this month in the form of a question, the joys and rewards of a curious life. Like I said, it's out this month. Amy Schneider, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. We are so excited for you. Congratulations on the book and thank you so much again for coming. Oh, thanks so much for having me. This is really, I was really excited to get the invite. Ah! Amy, thank you so much. I had so much fun. Uh... Yeah, same. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. You can learn more about this week's guest and their area of expertise in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. You can follow us on Instagram at CuriousJBN. And can I just say, our social work has been so good. We are just slaying over there. So give us that follow. You can catch us on here every Wednesday and make sure to tune in every Monday for alternating episodes of Curious Now and Pretty Curious. Still can't get enough, honey? Either can I. You can subscribe to Extra Curious on Apple Podcasts for commercial-free listening and our subscription-only show, Ask JBN, where we're talking sex, relationships, and so much more. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. Our engineer is Nathaniel McClure. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, Chris McClure, and Allison Weiss, with production support from Julie Carrillo, Ann Curry, and Chad Hall. <laughs>